Great. Okay, well, we're going to be continuing our series today that we began last week on open heaven, changing lives. And I just want to start off by noting something, which is that this is a really bold series. This is not me bigging us up, because this comes out of God, something God has spoken to us. But it's ambitious in a couple of ways. And the first thing, really, is that we're making a very bold claim. We're saying that those limitless resources that John was talking about, you know, that lake of God's goodness, God's power, that that is available to us all the time because heaven is open. And if we've got a little bit used to saying that, perhaps it warrants thinking about it a little bit more because this is quite incredible. This is something people have fought over and died for. Stephen, one of the first martyrs, got into a lot of trouble for saying that he saw heaven open and the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. That was enough to get him stoned by an angry mob. But it's true. But it's an ambitious truth, and let's note that, and let's not take it for granted. But it's ambitious in a different way as well, because it's not just ambitious in terms of the truth that we're claiming, which ultimately is true. It's ambitious because of what we're hoping for ourselves. You see, this God who has opened heaven above us, this is the God who spoke and matter was created. This is the God who spoke and terraformed mountains and valleys who moves his fingers and billions of megatons of water move around. This is the God who we're asking to come and change our lives. And um, that gives me pause for thought. I hope it does us. And it, it makes me think, we talk about the Spirit falling. We ask God to come down. We say, Spirit, fill us. We say, God, move in our lives. Um, but I have to ask, do we, do we really want this? Do we want this God, this wild, untamed God, with all of this incredible power to move in our lives? I want to come back to that question later. Perhaps talking about creating mountains and valleys is a good place to start, because, of course, the first place we find the Holy Spirit in Scripture is right there at the beginning of Genesis 1. The earth is void and without form, and the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, just ready to act and sort of poised, excited about what can happen. Um, But actually, we we are going to look at the Old Testament. We're not going to start in Genesis today. Um, So we're going to look at a couple of passages, one from the Old Testament and one from the New. And what I want to draw out is something of a pattern of how God interacts with people. Now, it is just that. It's a pattern. I'm very wary when we say God always this or God always that. And, uh, you know, there are some things that are universally true about God, but actually he seems to love to flaunt our human rules about him anyway, doesn't he? He, when, When we say God always does stuff this way, he loves to do it a different way. You could sort of imagine the disciples going a little bit spare about healing. You know, how do, how do we heal people who are blind, Jesus? Oh, okay, we put mud on their eyes. That's great. Yep. Oh, no, this one you don't put mud on their eyes. Okay, this one, yeah, this one you just lay your hand on. This one you have to pray twice. This one you just pray the way. There aren't always patterns to how God interacts with people. And if they are, they are patterns and not hard and fast rules. But what we want to see today is a pattern that I think will be helpful for us and that will lead us in turn to pray. And towards the end of the meeting, we're going to have a good chunk of time set aside to pray. So this pattern begins in 2 Chronicles 6. So if you want to crack out your Bibles or your phones, if that's how you do it. And we're going to read in a minute from verse 40. This passage finds us at the culmination of the building of the first temple. So what's happened? King David 
um, has, you know, has been king. He's ruled. He says to God, I'm going to build a temple for you. And God says, not you, actually. It's going to be your son. And so David gets everything ready and gets in materials and makes plans. But it's his son, Solomon, who builds this temple. And he starts in, I think, the fourth year of his reign, and it takes seven years to build. So this thing has been a long time in coming. The whole nation has been in sort of a state of excitement and turmoil. They've had people coming from overseas to, um, you know, to bring materials. They've had people coming from the next country along, skilled laborers, um, bringing with them all the tools and so on to build this temple. It's a project like they have never seen. And at the culmination of all of this, they have a big kind of opening service, if you like. And... Uh, They've planned everything they're going to do. And this is what happens. So from verse 40, Solomon's praying. He says, Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. Now arise, Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. They've brought in already the ark of the covenant, that box with the law of Moses, the symbol of everything God had promised them and the covenant he'd made. May your priests, Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests couldn't enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. An amazing experience. And I'd like to sort of start here in looking at our pattern of how God can interact with people. And this pattern starts with a group of people who are devoted to God. Well, actually, it's not quite true because the the devotion doesn't really start with the people. That devotion itself is a response to something. We see it in how they respond. He is good. His love endures forever. That was also what they sang as they brought the Ark of the Covenant in. This whole service began with them remembering what God had already done and who God already is and was. So their devotion wasn't just sort of out of nothing by any means. Their devotion was a response to an acknowledgement of who God is and what he's done and his faithfulness and his love. But their response is devotion. And we don't take that as read because you only have to look at the Israelites wandering in the desert to see a different response to God's faithfulness and goodness. He brings them out of slavery and they grumble and they become fearful and they become disobedient. They um, sort of make trouble for the leaders and they talk about going back to where they came from. So it's not a given that we will always respond to God's goodness in this kind of way. But here is a people who have responded to God's goodness in devotion and they've put themselves at God's disposal. Um, And then what what happens? Well, God sends his fire. Now, on one level, this could be incredibly frustrating because If they've spent seven years building the temple, you can imagine that somebody with the kind of mind of a Lou Wright or an Andy O'Connell has thought, we're going to need to plan for this, aren't we? What are we going to do? Let's get some plans together. Let's write some new songs. Let's make sure that we've read up in the book of the law about all the different sacrifices we should offer and the right order to do them. Let's make this a big thing. I would have been there the night before going, oh, rubbish, we should definitely work this out, shouldn't we? But... (laughs) some people laughing who know me better (laughs) 
But somebody has, has no doubt planned this, and they've got this service planned out, and they're all ready to offer their offerings, and they're ready to sing their new songs. And what happens? Well, God fills the temple with his glory, and they can't do it. Their plans get thrown out the window, and they're not even able to come into the temple because of what God has done. But you know what? It doesn't matter because God has done something greater, hasn't he? He's taken a man-made structure and he's consecrated it. He said, I will live here. And that's far greater than any new songs that could have been sung. And they probably got to sing them afterwards anyway, didn't they? But this awe-inspiring experience is one of consecration and God taking hold of this building and saying, it's mine and I'm going to live here. And what comes out of that? Well, what comes out of that is people being changed. And if we look at the prayers either side of this passage, um, it's actually the way it's told is a little bit interesting. You, you have this episode of the glory coming down twice if you read a little bit before and, and after. Clearly it's something which they said, the writer is mulling over. This happened. And oh, here's some of the things that were prayed here, but this happened. And here's some more of the prayers. So you can't necessarily read it chronologically, but the prayers that come out are wide-ranging. They're everything from declaring who God is, his greatness, his goodness, his love, to prayers of confession, you know, not just confession for now, but confession for the future. If in future, God, we offend you and then we turn back to this place, please would you hear us? Please would you forgive? There's sort of prayers for troubled times, intercession, if you like. There's God, if we find ourselves oppressed by enemies or struck down with illness or any of these things and we turn and pray, please would you hear us? And then perhaps most excitingly and most differently, and this is by no means the only place in the Old Testament, but it's much, much, much rarer. There's prayer for the nations as well. They explicitly pray, look, if a foreigner who doesn't know you turns and prays to this place, would you answer them and would you draw them close? If you look in the Bible at places in the Old Testament where there's a care for foreigners, it's nearly always when God is speaking through prophets saying you should be doing it or when he puts in his law that you should take care of the alien amongst you. It's very rare for God to change people in the nation of Israel sufficiently that they are praying out for the nations around them. Something has changed inside these people. And actually that change is not just in prayer because straight away afterwards we read about the Queen of Sheba coming to visit. And this visit is kind of initially because of, she's heard about um, Solomon's wisdom and she's heard about this amazing kingdom and she comes to visit. But what happens is a direct answer to that prayer. Because if we read on a little bit, this is, this is what she says after she's come and visited Solomon. The report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe what they said until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half the greatness of your wisdom was told me. You far exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. And then this is where it gets good. This is a, a queen who didn't know God. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on his throne as king to rule for the Lord your God because of the love of your God for Israel and his desire to uphold them forever. He has made you king over them to maintain justice and righteousness. Straight after they've prayed that foreigners would be drawn to the Lord, we have this queen arriving knowing nothing of God and she has this revelation through her experience this revelation that God wants justice and righteousness, this revelation that God has put Solomon in place to do good to his people, this revelation of his great love. 
I think that's quite incredible. So I want to draw out this pattern as something that we can um, apply, and we'll look at a couple of other passages in which this applies and then look at it ourselves. So starting with devotion, as I said, devotion in response to what God or who God is and what he has done. God sending his fire and then change inspired in people. Another instance this happens is Isaiah 6. I love this picture of Isaiah 6. I don't know if you, um, if you remember the passage, but this is where Isaiah sees the Lord high and seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and there are these creatures flying around crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And and I want, to, I want to just cover this one briefly, but we see the same pattern. Isaiah is there as one devoted to God. He's a prophet um, whose life is about listening to God and doing what he says. But when he sees this vision of God, he is aware of his own failings. He says, woe to me, I'm unclean. Our people are unclean. And God sends his fire in the form of a coal from the altar, touches his lips. He says, you've been made clean. There's God sending his fire. There's the change. And then that change is not just limited to Isaiah because what does God say next? He says, now who will go for us? Who should we send? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. God has got an expansive vision and he changes Isaiah's heart and Isaiah wants to go. But where I'd like to go really with this is to Acts. So if you want to turn to Acts 1, because I want to bring this into the New Testament and then look at how this applies to us and to the Spirit coming down. So from the beginning of Acts 1, and then I'm going to skip into Acts 2. Um, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said, it's not for you to know times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. We then have a short period of waiting recorded in which, among other things, they choose um, a replacement for Judas. And then at the beginning of Acts 2, we have this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were, staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? 
How is it then that each of us hears it in our own language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask each other, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And he goes on to explain what was going on, how this was a fulfillment of what Joel had foreseen. So I want to pick up on this same passage again. We have a people who are devoted and have put themselves at God's disposal. Again, this is in response to what God has done. There could not be a clearer picture of God's great devotion to his people than Jesus coming to earth, making himself nothing, devoting his life and then his death to his disciples and rising again from the dead and then coming back to them again. There could not be a greater expression of God's devotion. But in return, the people showed their devotion and they put themselves at his disposal. After Jesus ascends back into heaven, they've probably been about 10 days at this stage, we work out roughly, of just praying and worshipping more or less constantly and just waiting. They've been told to wait, and so they wait, and they do this, and Jesus has gone back into heaven, and they don't quite know what it is they're waiting for, but it's, you know, it's God baptizing them with the Holy Spirit, but they don't know what that looks like. And we're told that they were constantly meeting in the temple, but we're also told that they were staying together and they were worshipping and praying there as well. And God sends his fire. And there's change, isn't there? They start speaking in other tongues. They not just start speaking in other tongues, but they start speaking to other people from other nations about the glory of God, and nations turn to them. If thousands added to their number on that day and in the days that followed, there's a, such a change in them from being these fearful disciples who right up until you know, the moment that Jesus was taken from them. They were making mistakes. They were getting things wrong. They were, you know, sort of clumsy with their understanding of what God was doing. They were making all kinds of suggestions as to what God should do and how he should send the kingdom now. And and they didn't get it. And suddenly there is something in them that changes. And they start speaking in tongues and declaring the glories of God. Now, we're pretty sure that Pentecost took place in the temple. There is some debate about this. But you know, the tradition of it being in an upper room doesn't really stack up with there being thousands who suddenly appear. It doesn't stack up with what Jews would be doing squirreled away in an upper room when the festival of Pentecost was taking place. Everybody should have been at the temple. But the location isn't mentioned in this passage, and there's a question as to why. If they are in the temple, why does Luke not say? And, you know, they looked around the temple, and all these people flocked who had been there for the festival, and the answer is that the temple has become irrelevant This time, when God's fire has fallen, he hasn't filled the temple. He hasn't consecrated the temple. He's filled people. His fire has come down from heaven, and this time it's filled people. Anchoring it to the temple, saying that this happened in the courts of the temple, would be distracting from the message, which is that God has dwelt in his people. They're the ones who are consecrated. They're the ones who are changed. And that's an exciting message because that hasn't changed 
from then until now. This is, this is what we are living in, the age of the church, that same age in which God chose not to fill a building, but to fill a people. That's the age we live in. And those people become a community that we read later, everybody wants to join, but nobody quite dares to. I mean, we, we do read people do dare to, but all the people who are kind of like on the edge, I'd love to be part of this community, but it's scary stuff. And it's, it's all awe-inspiring stuff. Things go on that we don't understand. It's incredible. There's something else I want us to notice, though, which is that at this point in time, when they're waiting for Pentecost, they have already received the Holy Spirit. I hadn't noticed this before. Maybe you all had. Maybe you had done your cross-referencing of Gospels a bit better than I had. But John records that when Thomas is doubting and Jesus appears and says, you know, put your fingers in the holes, I'm really here, he then breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So they have already received the Spirit in some sense. And yet there's something more, isn't there? The Spirit comes on them in power. That's one difference. They're empowered. They speak in tongues. That's another difference. And they proclaim the good news boldly. That's a third difference. And these are really important ones because these go on happening. So Acts 4, we see Peter and John persecuted by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders at the time. They go back to their meeting place. All the believers gather and pray and the power of God comes and the place they're in is shaken. And what do we read? And they declared the word of God boldly. Just about every conversion in Acts is accompanied by the power of God and the person who's just come to the Lord speaking in tongues. These things happen. <laughs> and they go on happening for all our recorded history of the church in the book of Acts. It goes on happening. I want to say, in terms of what marks out and unifies the early church, it wasn't their scriptures, actually. People who came from outside the Jewish tradition didn't have that Hebrew Bible, didn't have the, the Torah. It wasn't their cultural heritage because actually the gospel spread to Jews and non-Jews. It spread to all those nations that were read out in that passage and further afield than that. It certainly wasn't their nationality. It was the person of Jesus, their devotion to him, and the presence of the Holy Spirit amongst them. That was what unified and marked out the early church as being different and as being together. So what about us? Well, look, again, I just want to stress, what I'm picking up here is, is really just a pattern. This is not the only way that we can pray, thankfully. In fact, Jesus taught a way to pray that is not like this. So clearly it's not the only way to pray, but it's a useful pattern. It's a useful pattern that can help us to experience more of God and more of his Holy Spirit. And it starts with showing our devotion to God. I found this picture. This is a clock in Bristol. It says, time to seek the Lord. And I actually have a postcard of a, a different one, which I couldn't find on the internet, down in Cornwall, which has the same. It's, it is time to seek the Lord. And I want to suggest that perhaps the first stage in us being devoted to God and putting ourselves at his disposal is to make that time I'm all for, I don't know if you've heard the phrase, arrow prayers. It wasn't one I'd come up with. It's, other people have talked about this to me. The kind of, you know, you're in the middle of something and something happens and you, you, know, you just pray, God, please, would you? And then you get on with what you were doing. And I'm, I'm all for that because heaven is open above us and we have constant communion with God if that's what we choose to take hold of. But there is something else to be grasped here, isn't there, of putting ourselves at God's disposal. And for that, we need time. And I want to suggest that there's something here that we could practice of setting aside good time for God. And these people 
are praying and waiting for 10 days, in which time the rest of their lives is totally on pause, totally on hold. I'm not suggesting that, although if God leads you that way, then do it. (laughs) But even just putting our lives on hold for an hour or two hours is quite a sacrifice sometimes, isn't it? It seems that way. But it allows us to put ourselves at God's disposal, not to be rushing away on the next thing, but to be saying, God, whatever you want, I'm here and I'm ready and I'm waiting. So stopping other things. And for me, location is important. I find that if I'm at home, uh, then I just get distracted. There's always stuff to do. And I get drawn into this, oh, well, I, I can still pray while I'm doing this. And before I know it, actually my focus is not on being at God's disposal, but it's on what I was doing. Um, so for me, I get out of the house. I go for a walk around the allotment. But for you, it could be something else. Um, I put my phone away because my phone is a constant distraction. And so if you, I, I would just say, if you haven't got a paper Bible, if for no other reason than for this, get a paper Bible. <laughs> because otherwise you pick up your phone and then there's a notification from Facebook or a text from somebody that totally throws your spiritual state. And, you know, we should be wise to the fact that the enemy likes to distract us from these things. Um, so, yeah, set aside sufficient time, put aside distractions. And actually, I find this is just a little tip that I find helpful. You will have your own as well. I also have a little pad with me for distracting thoughts. So it'll be absolutely classic that I'm halfway through, um, you know, waiting on God, and suddenly I think, oh, the car needs to be booked in for an MOT. And you know that if you don't do something about it then, you're probably going to forget, and then you'll remember in a week's time, and there won't be time. So Dana goes on the pad. I can look at that at the end. I don't need to think about it now. Yeah, I need to respond to um, Lise's friend about going to his party. Dana goes on the pad. It can wait till the end. That works for me. You may have other things that work for you, but practical things that allow us to put aside distractions so that we can actually be at God's disposal. And then expect the fire. Now, the fire doesn't depend on us. Let's be totally clear. We cannot force God to do anything. We wouldn't want to. Well, I think it would be ill-advised at least. But God is willing. God loves to interact with his people. God didn't have to send his spirit. God could have come up with his own way of telling the world about the good news of Jesus. God could have left us where we were. God chose to engage with us because he loves to engage with us. God fills his people because he loves to fill his people. And so we can expect confidently that he will. Like I say, these are patterns. God doesn't have to do anything the way that we think he does. I have a fantastic recording, um, which my father-in-law passed to me, of a chap who's preaching and his voice has totally gone. Some of you will have heard me talk about this. He talks a bit like this. And it's almost painful to listen to because his voice, has, his vocal cords have been stripped by a virus. <clears throat> and genuinely, it's like that. It's painful listening. And he's preaching on Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Let everything within me praise his holy name. He forgives all our sins and heals all our diseases. And he's halfway through explaining that he doesn't believe that God has to heal every time because Jesus died on the cross. He says, you have to let God be God. Because he loves to kick out the walls of any box you put him in. And as he's preaching this, his voice is healed. You can hear it come back and then you hear the, the hush. And then the, is this really happening, kind of bubbling up. In the, it's just electrifying. I, I'll happily share it if you, um, if you want to hear it. But it's amazing. He's just honored God in the most amazing way. He said, look, 
I believe God heals, but he doesn't have to do anything that we say he has to do. But his expectation is still that God is good. You see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're faced with the fiery furnace. And they say to the king, look, our God is able to save us, and he will. That's their default expectation. This is how we see God acting. This is the kind of God we have, and he will. But even if he doesn't, he's not obliged to save them. We expect he will, but he's not obliged to. But even if he doesn't, we're still going to do what's right. And so I want to say we can have that same expectation. You know, God loves to fill his people. God loves to baptize his people in the Holy Spirit, not just as a one-off, but in that go-on-being-filled-with-the-Spirit kind of way. He doesn't have to do it, but we can expect it confidently. And I want to suggest in this, there's a couple of pitfalls to avoid. One is expecting it to look like someone else's experience. Even between Acts 2 and 4, we have two different experiences of the power of God coming on his people. One is flames of fire coming down. One is the place in which they're meeting being shaken. Was it an actual earthquake? Was it just that the room seemed to shake? And it, it doesn't matter, does it? It was a different experience. But in both cases, the power of God filling these people and empowering them to speak boldly. Don't expect it to look like somebody else's experience. It could be totally different. Just to share something, I, I had a really powerful experience on Friday. Um, I was actually I was working on this sermon. I was in a coffee shop and I was due to meet a friend. And ahead of meeting the friend, I, I was aware I had the, the sermon to finish. <laughs> I was thinking I need to do this, but then I thought actually these meetings are always better if I take some time to listen to what God wants for the meeting. So why don't I take some time and, and pray? And God being gracious. You know, it wasn't long, five minutes, and he dropped in this little phrase. It was actually from a fictional book. It was a Tolkien quote. And I just felt like God said, just throw that out there and ask him what he thinks. And I was a little bit nervous, if I'm honest, because, you know, it didn't feel particularly solid. It wasn't scriptural. It was just a, a quote. And, but, but, you know, I said, okay, well, God, I'll go with this. And I, and I shared it, and it turned out to be bang on the money, um, you know, afterwards, I said, I hadn't expected that to be so relevant. <laughs> Not sure that's a reflection on me. Anyway, um, but actually, there, there was something powerful in that. But then I felt, I, I, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say, am I, you know, I... I'm not trying to be mysterious. I just want to honor the fact that was a private conversation. Sorry. But um, afterwards, I felt a rise of faith to pray with this guy. And I felt a rise of faith to pray for him to be filled with the Spirit afresh. And... As I laid hands and prayed, this was in, in Costa in Summertown. It was um, not somewhere I've prayed for people to be baptized in the Spirit before. But it was like everything else just disappeared. I, I had the most powerful encounter with God that I've had in years, in which uh, it's, it's hard to describe, but there was something of every word that I spoke. First of all, I knew it was from God. I just knew without a doubt that it was from God as I, as I prophesied. And also, I had an intense experience that as I spoke, it was like it was coming into being. And it's hard to explain because I knew it was from God, and so in some senses it was, you know, it was going to happen, and yet I was being given the privilege of speaking it into being. It was not like tongues of fire coming down. It was not like the place I was in being shaken. But I cannot say anything other than that I was totally baptized in the Spirit in that moment, and I spoke words that I believe God will see achieved. I spoke words that were life to the person I was speaking them to, and had a deep impact on me as well. And afterwards, I, was, I just didn't know what to say. You know, you, I didn't want to cloud the moment with my own words. <laughs> there was silence for a little while afterwards as it was a sort of, well, that, that just happened, okay. 
But the point is, that wasn't about me. That was about God doing something amazing in a way that I didn't expect. Isaiah says this, doesn't he? He says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. God, when you did great and awesome things, we did not expect you opened the heavens and you came down. So we can expect that God will act, but we don't necessarily know what it will look like. So don't expect it to look like other people. The second one is don't be satisfied with too little. I feel, again, this draws on what John was saying. It's perhaps a slightly different angle on it, but it's great that every day we have experiences of the Holy Spirit. It's great that when we pray, we have that sense of peace that comes or we have a sense of excitement about something that God's calling us to. But let's not allow the little to, to make us think that there is not the big on offer. Every day we can commune with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's expectation when he says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit, seems to be that actually perhaps every day we can have these overwhelming filling with the Spirit experiences. But let's not allow the fact that we've, we're used to every day having some experience of the Holy Spirit to keep us from asking for that full baptism we talk lots about what baptism is when we do water baptism and how it's a total immersion. You know, you dunk something to the point where the biscuit falls apart in the tea. But this is what we're after in the Holy Spirit. We're after being immersed in the Holy Spirit to the point where what is hard starts to crumble, where we are totally, totally filled and soaked through. I think as well we can expect to speak in tongues. Now, I'd, I would love to go into a full, in-depth exposition of the theology of speaking in tongues, not just why it's biblical, but also why it's good and the good it does to us. There isn't time for it, but more to the point, Steve Jones did it much better than I would, and it's on the website. And if you haven't had that experience, or if you perhaps speak sometimes in tongues but don't really get why it's important and the good that it does, can I just encourage you, go and search for it on the website. Steve Jones, it's called Let's Speak in Tongues, so it's not hard to find. And he just spends, you know, 40 minutes unpacking why it's biblical, um, what effect it has. And then there's a fantastic testimony on there from Helen Hipwell as well about how God worked in her through speaking in tongues. If that's not part of your daily experience, I just encourage you, um, listen to the talk and ask God and expect that as the Spirit comes on you, you will also speak in tongues. It's partly a submission of what we know and what we understand to what we acknowledge to be greater but don't understand fully, which is the mind of God. It's allowing the spirit who knows the mind of God to pray in a way that is uninhibited by our lack of knowledge. So, put ourselves at God's disposal. Expect the fire. Speak in tongues. The last thing is allow the change. I mean, consistently we see through the Bible that God loves to change people. He is the one who leads us in right paths for his name's sake. The, the burden of the direction, the change, the power to bring about the change all rests with him, and yet we can resist him. It seems incredible, doesn't it, with the, the God who, like we were thinking about at the beginning, creates mountains and valleys. That he allows us to resist him, but he does. Not always. Sometimes God just overrules us, and that's great. But there's a, there's a passage, I, I'm afraid I can't remember the reference, and I should do, I think it's in the Proverbs, where it says, do not be like the horse that requires a bit and bridle. And there's a call on us not to, be, not to make God force us, but to choose to obey, to choose to allow the change. When we get a sense of what God is doing, to say, yes, I want this wholeheartedly, even if it sort of scares me, even if it's daunting.
So allow the change, welcome the change. There's something of that welcoming in Solomon's prayer at the beginning, isn't there? You know, now God, come and dwell. And we can say that same thing. We can say, now God, you know, come and dwell and change things as you want. Consecrate us.